Welcome to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with innovators, challenging the status quo to create a better world. You're listening to Season 1, our series on space as a service. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. That's at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram. And this season, I'll be chatting with executives creating the future of commercial real estate. If you're a landlord, if you're an asset owner, if you're an agent, if you're in corporate real estate, you need to be listening because we're answering all the questions you need to know about space as a service. Welcome back and thank you for listening. This season of the Workboard Podcast, we've been talking to experts involved with delivering space as a service. We've discussed trends driving demand for this future asset class, how landlords should respond and how landlords are starting to respond. Also the impact on building valuations and why and when partnerships with operators make sense. But today we're gonna to talk about the future of work because the future of work equals the future of commercial real estate. And when I say the future of work, I'm referring to what's happening today and how today's trends become tomorrow's mainstream. And today's trends are driving the demand for space as a service. But don't just take my word for it. Have a listen today and make your own conclusion. We're talking with Chris Richmond from PwC, PricewaterhouseCooper. He's the senior head of real estate for PwC. And Chris has been a chartered surveyor since 1991, gaining an MBA from Kingston University and has 30 years experience in commercial real estate, primarily working on the client side with large corporations such as Royal Mail, Orange, EE, and PwC. His achievements include the renewal of the office portfolio to right-size workplaces into modern, flexible, and sustainable and vibrant spaces in line with evolving business needs. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello. So Chris, can you sort of give us a high level of the size of the portfolio across the UK and the number of people you support? Yeah, I'm responsible for uh, the occupational estate throughout the UK. And my principal role is to provide strategic direction, acquisition, and the ongoing management of the estate. So we, we have about 1.6 million square feet in the UK, broadly two offices in London, three offices in Scotland, uh, and also we have offices in Wales and Northern Ireland. And across these offices, how many people roughly are working in the occupation? So we've currently got a population of 24,500. Uh, that compares with uh, eight years ago when it was 15,500. So over that period of time, we've seen considerable headcount head growth. Massive growth. You're like a small city now. Seems that way at times. <laughs> well, on these assets that you're in, are these on conventional leases or how do you take space? Principally on traditional leases. Uh, we have a, a range of leases from five up to 20 years, depending on the size and the strategic nature of the building. So typically uh, in London, where we've got our two biggest offices, they will be held on 20-year leases with some flexibility in that. Mm. Normally around the 15-year, we, we would have options to break. Uh, in the regions, we have a variety of offices that uh, extend from anywhere from 10 with breaks at five up to 15 with breaks at 10. Okay. So the idea is that we give the business as much flexibility as we can. So often, Chris, we talk about the future of work topic. We bring up the subject of the war for talent. Do you see a correlation between your office environments and talent acquisition? Definitely. Uh, what we have in terms of our population is uh, the average age is 28. So we have an extremely low average age across our headcount, which means that we have to cater for that age group. So we're continually looking at what the uh, younger generation, the millennials particularly, want from the, from the space. I knew that word was going to come up at some point. <laughs> well, we recruit 1,500 graduates every year. So yes, we need to be very competitive in what we offer our graduates. 
Uh, and one of those is the space in which they will come to work, or as I would like to say, you know, the hub that they will come to, to collaborate and treat it as though it's their community. And in many ways, that's what the office stands for, for us. It's a place where people come to get together, to collaborate, to share ideas. It's almost like a, a community hub for them. Mm. And so when you talk about recruiting this talent, 1,500 graduates a year, the average age being 28, what does talent want? What does talent expect? Something that inspires, they want to go to, puts a smile on their face. But most of all, it's somewhere that they can go to, to achieve what they want to achieve on a particular day, given the task they've got to do. So I often think of our offices really as places that offer the support they contain the culture, the values of our organization. That's where they have a sense of belonging to the organization. It's a workplace of choice alongside working from home, working from a client site or another place such as a cafe or what have you. So it has to provide the right environment and surroundings when they come into the workspace to fulfill those needs. You know, our first episode featured Anthony Slumbers, who we all often say coined the term space as a service, but he in his talks around the world, one of my favorite quotes by Anthony is, companies don't want an office, they want a productive workforce. And what you just said resonates to me mm. with that quote. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we try and do is create an environment that stimulates uh, productivity in many ways. Uh, I mean, what we try and do is create an atmosphere where people feel happy and want to come. And quite often, some of the feedback that we get from our surveys sort of suggests that we are doing that quite well. I think there's always room for improvement, but some of the feedback managers are sort of saying, you know, people are coming in and, you know, they're feeling a lot happier about coming in. Uh, they are also dressing smarter. Now, whether that's a gauge, I don't know, but it, it certainly sends a signal that obviously, you know, they're coming in uh, feeling a bit different about the place after we've done a refit. Uh, likewise, people are sort of saying it feels like working for a different organisation when we go through that 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 process of relocating people. So I think if you have a happy workforce, clearly that must feed through to productivity. I think also there's other variables to it. Of course there is, not just the physical environment, there's a climate in which they're operating in. And we spend a lot of time and effort in trying to get that right as well. So we're talking about air quality and you know just that general feeling uh, in the office that we're creating the right all round sense of you know, comfort for them. Chris, I agree with you in the sense that a happy workforce is a productive workforce. And you talk about air quality, you, you talk about you know, making sure people are happy. I want to get a little granular, if possible, and dive into that real quick. How are you, how is PwC and your team ensuring that people have what they need from the space to be productive and ultimately happy and productive? I think, obviously, there, there's a number of factors that feed into that. We've invested heavily in technology in the last year, and we've just installed 17,500 sensors. Wow, 17,500 sensors. which which covers all of our, our workspaces uh, for our individuals. And what that's telling us is what's working well and what's not working well. And that starts the dialogue. So it helps that emotional intelligence bit that sort of says, right, okay, you know, things are, the data saying to us, things are saying that, you know, there's not quite things right on floors. What is it? Is it about the natural light? Is it about the ventilation? Is it the furniture settings that aren't working? How, how, does, that, how does the sensor tell you whether it's working well or not? So it's a movement sensor. As soon as you sit under that, it will detect whether someone's at that space. And over a period of time, and it is very much trend data, um, so over a period of time, 
you will then be able to gauge what percentage that space is being used. And I think that then gives us an idea of where we should investigate further to see why certain places aren't being used. Okay. Now, a lot of it is based on, you know, I think what the data is saying is we do health checks. So we will then have those discussions with each of the uh, office leaders to understand perhaps from their perspective why, why spaces aren't working so as you well see as we anticipated. So you see the data more as a symptom and then of something and then you need to have conversations. And then you drill down okay. into, uh, as, and clearly that's the human contact point, yep. to try and understand exactly what's going on at a local level. And that may be a whole range of things that aren't working for the users in sure. that space. And then once you have those conversations, then, then you can react and, and reallocate or optimize accordingly. Absolutely. And the driver behind this is, is evidential change. So based on the data evidence together with the feedback that we're getting and those, that, that interface that we're having, we can justify changes. And that will be on a continual basis. So we call it a living portfolio. No longer are we uh, investing in space uh, as a project, walking away from it for you know, five, 10 years. What we're saying is we will make changes as and when they are required. I love that. Even, even if that's, you know, six months to 12 months after actually fitting out the office. Now, the chances are, you know, you're not going to get it all wrong, but there will be elements that perhaps need tweaking. Sure. Uh, and that's the importance of the data and actually constant feedback. I love that, that statement, a living portfolio. And uh, I mean, I think, I think if you're listening to this right now, if you want to tweak anything, a living portfolio is what it's about. And can you maybe give us an example of, of how you've taken the data, had the conversations and optimized? Uh, there are a number of conversations going on at the moment where we have noticed uh, that a particular area is not being used. Now, this area, just to give you an example, was set up in the floor space, but is configured such that you can get a group of people around there in front of a screen. Now, when we visited the space, it was clear that it, was, it wasn't being used for that purpose because there was magazines spread out onto that table. Clearly, it was just being used really as a storage space we were able to look at the data and verified that no one had sat at that space for a period of months. Uh, that's a good opening to a conversation locally to mm -hmm. say, well, what would you prefer there to make, to utilize that space? Uh, and then we action it accordingly. So in this particular case, uh, they were looking for booths, more quiet areas within the space. Okay. So that it can um, focus on people's needs for quieter meetings a more intimate space for confidentiality. Certainly. Um, I want to go back to what you said earlier about the portfolio being a hub for people. And I want to ask, going back also to the war for talent, how is flexible working um, a part of your strategy? Very much so. It's fundamental. We have a policy called Everyday Flexibility uh, that was implemented almost two years ago. Effectively, that said to everyone within the business, only come into the office when you need to. Uh, so that gives people the absolute empowerment to make that choice for themselves. As a result of that, what we have seen is that we need to deliver quite firmly on what the people want when they come in. So I talk about community. I talk about that sense of belonging. I talk about the values and culture that people get when they come into the space. That's what we need to give them because it's no longer about clerical working. That processing side of it is done elsewhere. Well, they can Possibly do it. Possibly at home. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So 
it, it, it's about providing that uh, to the right levels and that flexibility, the adaptability, the ability for people to get together as groups, maybe large groups, 20, 30, 40. And so some of the uh, settings that we've got uh, are, provide that internally. So no longer are we reliant on our visitor client areas. We have them internally. Uh, likewise, some people that may come in working in projects. Again, we have smaller facilities for that. And so it's, it's really about providing the right support. Uh, and that goes right the way through the services. And I've just touched really on the physical some, but it is really about the services as offered. So it's the support that we give it, whether it's IT or it may be health support in some areas uh, as well. So our facility... Say, what do you mean health support? So we, we have in-house dentists, for example. We oh, have right. counsellors, for example. Uh, you know, mental health is very big. Uh, so it is on like the agenda and particularly within our business. So one in three of us will suffer from some, some form of mental illness. And so what we encourage is for people to speak to our counsellors. So they may come in for that type of support. So it may not be just limited to, you know, the, the, the support, the work support that they will get from team members. It may be in other areas as well. So you're... Providing your, your team um, a space, a hub to come in and for collaboration, but you're giving them the choice of where and how and when they're most productive. And you're also mindful of their well-being and providing services to them to make sure that that's taken care of. Yeah. That's, I think, amazing. And I think absolutely important for any company to, to think about for, for their team. And I think, um, well, actually, I want to ask you if you can share on a personal basis, how do you manage your schedule? Are you in the office every day or how does that no, work for you? No, typically I'm in two days a week uh, and then a couple of days traveling around the portfolio and okay. I'll do a day uh, working from home. So I'm, that- I'm fairly typical. I would say that, um, you know, about on average, we provide 1.4 uh, heads with a desk. Well, you're, just, leading, you're leading on to my next question So here. I'm just going into a few, <laughs> a bit of data there. So um, just to give you an idea, when I talked about the 24,500, yeah. I mean, we haven't got uh, as many seats as that. And, and okay. I talked about 17,500 sensors. In fact, uh, typically, we will be getting into our workspaces around about sort of twelve to 13,000 people on a typical day. Okay. Uh, the workspaces that we put within those spaces are about 75% occupied on an average day. And in London, they're over 80 and sometimes 85. We try not to get over 85 because then we limit the flexibility that we can offer. Is there a point in which you're trying to balance between making sure people have the flexibility they need, the space they need when they want it, and maintaining a certain occupancy level versus making sure that your, the ROI on the mm. investment in the space is the right number? How do you, mm. do you look at that? data tells us a lot so we're constantly monitoring it have we got it right does it feel about right um and we've got a traffic light system in some cases obviously if we are reaching capacity what can we do to put that right uh so it's continual monitoring of the situation um what we've invested in also in our london offices uh is uh more flexible space than on the practice floors so work together spaces provide us a, a form of co-working mm-hmm. uh where people can drop in for an hour or two they may be then going out of the office to to go to client sites typically Is, do you we have get, to book that in advance or no it's all free address okay so we have no booking throughout our portfolio 
Uh, and we've used technology again to help us with that. So um, the sensors enable us to give our users as they come in in the morning, they look at a screen and they can see what's available. Right. So their experience uh, is enhanced right from the moment they walk in because they can identify what's available and go to that space. And that may be a booth if they're looking to do some quiet working reading, or it may be a large bench where you might have 10 people around a table. So with all of this discussion we just had, and I think there's probably two sorts of um, topics here in this conversation today, and, and this last question here is going to lead into the, the rest, I think. With all of this discussion, how does this affect your decision-making process when you go acquire a new space or when you're renewing leases in your portfolio? Typically, we'll be looking at location. I think first and foremost, it's imperative to us that we have town centre location near good transport hubs. Um, that fulfills a lot of things. I think it, it certainly fulfills what uh, our people want because amenity to us is, is actually not what's in the building so much as what's around the building. So That's town centre, and, and you know, what, we're, what certainly uh, you know, we're experiencing is that you know, the youngsters, if I can call them that, uh, one to live in the town centre, you know, that, that blurred lines between, what, yeah, between work and play. And, uh, you know, what we experience in London, perhaps it's slightly different what we experience in the regions, but in London, they'll come in later, work later and then go out. Um, so location is imperative for us. So, you know, we pretty much renewed the whole portfolio over the last eight years. And with that exception, they've all been in town in, with good, good communications. Can I stop you there real quick? So it's always, I think always real estate has always been location, location, location. Yeah. I've heard, I might've even said, but I've heard also that service, service, service is the replacement of location, location, location. But what I'm hearing from you is that location is still very important. Location and the building, the building quality specification, it's sustainability rating, uh, large open floor plates so that we can have single floor working. So it combined those two. Uh, and then we talk about service, and um, I think there's, there's two aspects to service. The service that we can provide to our people within our space and the service we expect of our landlords before our people get to our space or our visitors and clients get to our space. I think that's been a real bugbear of mine over the years and been involved in a number of initiatives through BCO. Yep. And produced a number of reports around this. So BCO, for those of you who aren't in the UK listening, uh, it's the British Council for Offices. Sorry, continue, Chris. And the BCO have been at the forefront of looking at the service provision that uh, landlords uh, are perhaps not providing. Um, I have to say when the first report came out uh, in 2015, it was certainly clear uh, that only 17% of occupiers thought that the landlords were doing a good job in terms of offering services within the buildings. Our estate is, uh, is leasehold. It's all leasehold. So we control only four of those offices where, you know, from the moment you walk in, we will be in control of the front of house. So the vast majority is under the control of the landlord. And that causes us some frustration in many cases, because what we expect the landlord to provide uh, is to the same level of service that we will provide to our people as soon as they walk in our door. Well, I want to quote you on that, because in the 2019 BCO report, you have a, a forward in there. And if I, if I may, I'm going to quote you. It's, it's also clear from this report that despite the recommendations made in 2017, 
the cultural change required to shift the focus of traditional landlords to space as a service is not happening quickly enough. I think that's paramount for everyone to listen to. I mean, I want to hear it from you. Mm. What sort of services do you expect a building today to offer? I, I think it's, it, it's not just the physical services, but it's the, it's the level of service that can be offered by the individuals. Uh, so if I could give you an example, you walk in a front door, that sense of arrival, you go over to the front desk, no longer do you want to see a security guy. Uh, what you want to see is a receptionist that is going to welcome you into the building. Uh, feel like you're walking into a hotel. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, there's, there's no difference between security, really, and hospitality. I think, you know, if you choose the right person, I think they can cover both of those. Sure. Uh, and, and I've, then, I've and seen they, that done well in some yeah, places. Yeah, and, it, and it's starting to take uh, shape, I think. Uh, and there is a lot of positivity out there. And I have to say from, you know, over the last few years, you know, a lot of the managers have started to get on board with this. And, uh, you know, as, I suppose we've We've tended to bring this up early in, in our negotiations when we are choosing suitable buildings to sort of say, well, what level of service are you going to provide? So that's the human contact piece, uh, as well as the cleaning, the level of security, the maintenance, repair, and what have you. But more importantly, it's that human contact. It's that experience side of it rather than the physical service that we would be looking to, to get from landlords now. Fascinating. So, Chris, why do you think the industry is slow to move from product to service? I think there's a lot of education involved. Uh, I think if you look at some of the previous reports, and I, and I would recommend people take a look at those reports, they are freely online through the BCO website. And we'll attach them to, to this podcast too for people to download. And I th because I, th I think what, what it highlights is that whilst there's been some progress uh, in managers and we're talking about property managers here, the people that uh, the landlords instruct to provide the service in that building to the occupiers who pay the bills through the service charge. And I think from an occupier's viewpoint, my major frustration has been that, you know, we're asked to pay the service charge through the lease. We're committed, obliged to do that. But quite often it feels it's all charge and no service. And the reason I say that is managers do not take a proactive interest in occupiers. They do not come around, knock on the door and ask, how is it for you? Is there anything else we can do? Uh, certainly in the UK market, we have quarterly meetings between typically the occupier and the managed agent. You may get a landlord come along or an asset manager, uh, but, but that's rare. So that your discussions are with the manager and the manager is effectively taking their instruction from the owner, straight landlord. So it's almost a conflict I wouldn't say a conflict of interest, but where does it, the loyalty lie? It, it, it does feel like that. They're, the managers are in the middle there. And I, I always think there's a missed opportunity for the managers. I really do. I think, I think they could be the educators, the, the, the agents for change in many ways. So they can educate up the line to the, to the owners. And you have to realize a lot of, lot, of this, lot of the property in the UK is owned by the institution funds. So they've got fund managers uh, that perhaps don't get out to see the assets perhaps as, 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 as often maybe as I would like, certainly, because for them to get a, a look and a feel perhaps of the building and how the occupiers are using it would be great feedback for them. And, and with that information, they could then accordingly have the conversations with the property manager about how more engaging they could be, mm. how they could influence far more 
changes within the building, um, but more importantly, the satisfaction of the occupiers, simply by being more transparent, more open, more proactive. And a lot of these, what I would call fairly simplistic measures may, you know, should be there from the outset. If you look at other industries uh, which have evolved, uh, that customer focus is certainly there because the competition demands it. Well, this might be a controversial statement or question, but it, what, is, what is the incentive? If you're in a 10 or 15 year lease, what's the incentive for them to provide an extra level of service? I think that's always been the debate. Uh, and I think, <laughs> I, th I think that's the crux of it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, when uh, these discussions are had, I think it's, uh, and, and we've had these around round tables, we've, we've had owners and managers and occupiers around the table, and we all come from very different angles. Typically, the long-term investors will just be looking at cash flow. And when they uh, procure the service, generally, they will do it on price. Mm. The occupiers really are about quality. So don't tell me the price of what it's going to be and how cheap it's going to be if it's not delivering the quality of service that I need. As major an disconnect, yeah. It's a major disconnect. Um, so what is, what is the incentive? I th I th the incentive must be that if you have a happy occupier, they're likely to stay with you longer. There's some research done by Dr. Sanderson who analysed more than 4,400 interviews with occupiers of shopping centres, retail parks, but more specifically... Uh, multi-tenanted office buildings. And what was proven there was that uh, occupier satisfaction, even by one level out of five, could typically impact uh, the total returns by 1.9% for owners. So I think that goes to demonstrate that customer satisfaction can not only buy loyalty, but it can impact value. Well, that, I mean, that is true in almost every other industry. Uh, real estate has been I guess real estate with the long-term leases that's been around for ages um, doesn't really see customer satisfaction, customer service in the same way other industries have. But uh, that report that Chris is referring to is uh, from the BPF. Uh, you can go on their website, bpf.org.uk, to find it. It's called Research Proves Link Between Occupier Satisfaction and Property Performance. So Chris, just coming back to that uh, real quick, uh, to the BCO report, I mean, I've got one more piece I want to quote for you. The demand for excellent customer service in the workplace is here to stay. Efficiency, flexibility, adaptability, sustainability, and well-being continue to be a top concern to occupiers. Office building owners and managers are increasingly being asked and now expected to offer a service that supports these business objectives. If the office industry cannot deliver the service customers want, they will either self-deliver or take their business elsewhere. The increase in the percentage of space being taken by corporates from companies like WeWork, IWG, Regis, uh, and the office group, rather than traditional landlords, is testimony to this. So my question to you, all of your, your whole entire portfolio is on leases. Would you take space in a building that was managed by a space as a service operator? We have got examples of taking space within flexible space, but... Uh, that tends to be when we either require project space, so it's short term, uh, or we're between moves. Uh, so we don't do it for strategic purposes, if I can put it like that. So we, we're not looking at uh, putting teams into that space longer term. I think what we are trying to do with our space is create communities, as I said, uh, that sense of belonging, uh, that sense of uh, you know, being part of our culture and values. 
we feel we can best do that within our space, managing the space as we see fit, uh, having control over the services. Uh, that's not to say that you know some of the co-working environments do not work for others. Uh, I think where you see the WeWorks and others is that they are creating communities, and that's what we tend to do in the corporate environment. We are doing the same. We're creating those communities within our space. Obviously, the co-workers are bringing perhaps smaller businesses together, the startups and what have you, uh, that want to collide with like-minded people within that space, providing events. Uh, in a corporate arena, we do that ourselves with, with, within our own space. We have also, uh, from our point of view, regulations and compliance that we have to adhere to, which makes it difficult for us to perhaps benefit from that community feel and spirit that you are likely to get you know, in a WeWork and others. So that, that would be the main purpose that we would do it, uh, or, or, or not as the case may be. Uh, where we have taken uh, space for short-term periods, it has been self-contained space and we've controlled it tightly. So once people are in our space, we really bring our own brand and feel to the space. So then going back to my last question, and, and actually more specifically that previous quote about corporates moving to some of these spaces of service brands away from traditional landlords. If a building were to be run by a spaces of service brand, but um, in being able to deliver a lot of these services that you're self-delivering now for your teams, um, if the space was self-contained for PwC, but run by one of these spaces of service operators, is that something you would consider? I think we'd look at it without doubt. I, I think it, it certainly has benefits to, you know, buying the service and a guaranteed service. And I think that's the key. Does it come with, you know, key performance indicators and SLAs drawn up in it? And that's the key because, uh, you know, we have developed our in-house service team, which we call one team. And it comprises a number of service providers that all work together and take joint responsibility for delivering the service. So whether it's a cleaner engineer or front of house, they are one team and they take joint responsibility for everything that goes on within that space. Uh, so that's vitally important to us. And we brought that in about two years ago and we've seen certainly the level uh, and the interaction, the enthusiasm, the engagement from those, those people that provide us. And we consider them just as important as anyone else within the business. They're the people that you know, keep us operating uh, day by day. So if you can deliver something against a KPI and an SLA, and that's the important thing, we've not found that. We like to have the control to be able to make the changes. And uh, you know, if it's not working, then obviously we, we're empowered to, to do that and make, uh, make the changes accordingly. Well, it sounds like an opportunity out there for someone. I, my, one of my biggest takeaways from this, and thank you for uh, sharing all of these insights with us, one of my biggest takeaways is that your focus is in, in creating a living portfolio is to make sure that your teams have a happy environment because they can choose when and where they're most productive. So you want to make sure that they choose to come into the real estate, into the space, as and when they need to. Otherwise, what's the point in having it, right? Correct. And, you know, I keep going back to this point. We have community managers. I know we work have community managers, and that's exactly what we're creating. We're creating community, no different than up and down the country where you you go to a pub or you might go to to the local town hall, village hall, or wherever you do. You go there to collaborate, to share ideas, to innovate. 
to come up with solutions that you wouldn't necessarily come up with, uh, you know, on your own. So it's all about that support, and that's vitally important to us. Um, and as long as we get that right, and as long as we can continue to service that space right, then I'm sure our people will be delighted uh, with what we're with what we're providing. And uh, you know, it to me, I get great sense of enjoyment when we got feedback from a graduate recently. And they walked through the door and they looked around at our space and they said, wow, I know I want to work for this organization. So if we can get more of that, then it shows that we must be doing something right. And I think more importantly, you know, I take a great deal of pride in supporting our business, enabling it to move forward. You know, it's, it's, it's a dynamic environment, you know, the business environment that we work in. We need to, you know, flex our space even more than we've done so before. So if we can continue to do that, then obviously we'll be doing something right. I have one final small question. I think it's a small question before my quick fire round for you, which is a set of lighter questions. Um, with all this being said, do you see PwC taking shorter leases? Are you looking for more flexibility? We vary according to the size of our offices throughout the country and, and, and perhaps their strategic importance to that area. So over the last few years, we've moved from two-thirds London-based to 50-50, 50% London, 50% regions. We've created larger offices now in the regions. Uh, there's seven national hubs, so those leases tend to be around the, the, the sort of 10 to 15 years, uh, yep, yep. Uh, whereas the smaller ones tend to be slightly less. But yes, flexibility is key. And what we'll do is we may take several floors of one building, uh, one or two maybe on slightly longer terms uh, with less flexibility, and then we'll have more flexibility perhaps on the other two, just so that we can flex it according to where the business sees itself in the future. And I think buying in that flexibility helps the business. By doing that also, it focuses minds. And we've been able to uh, take out pre-lets on a number of buildings in the last few years where we've only committed to core space, but we've signed up for option space, uh, where we've given the business a period of time, typically six months or a year, to decide whether they want additional space. And that's vitally important for them because it actually gives them a, a roadmap upon which to make decisions. So by doing that, we've actually helped the business influence uh, the space, the size of the offices in all of the locations that we currently are in. That's brilliant. Uh, it's been great to hear from an occupier's perspective what's important and what's important for uh, the people who are actually in the space every day. Um, just a few quick Quick answers to these questions, but um, I'm just curious, you know, and I think everybody listening is probably curious, who is it that, you know, you look up to in this industry? Who, do, who inspires you? I think when I, when I look at some of the uh, developers particularly that have done some good work in the last few years, and, and I think particularly those ones that have created places, placemaking has been vitally important to our strategy. Absolutely. So when I look at Spinning Fields in Manchester where we, we've moved into – it's the amenity around the building. It extends from outside um, into, into the wider area. They've done a fantastic job. Mike Ingu um, particularly is so passionate about getting the right food and beverage mix around there, the retail mix, making sure it works, the entertainment, uh, the pop-ups, all of that. Fantastic. Uh, I've also got to follow up by saying Argent do a fantastic job up in King's Cross, oh, yeah. London. Um, but also we, we're moving on to, uh, and we, did, we just moved in there beginning of last month, into Paradise, which is a scheme right in the heart of Birmingham, oh, right. which, which Arch Argent are developing at the moment. 
again, bringing some of the um, placemaking ethos to that. And close to home, perhaps in London here, we have an office in more London. And St. Martin's, again, manage that estate really well and provide something very different. Uh, I think in terms of architects, Norman Foster, Okay. I've got to say over six decades, I think he's been going now, and certainly he was the architect to uh, our Seven More London building, um, which, which I think you know, really does stand out as something very spectacular. It's, uh, a lot of people say it looks like a bit, bit like a spaceship. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but it inspires and it gives you a sense of right. uh, a sense of arrival. Well, everybody tries to leave their mark on the London skyline, and it, yeah. but it is a great property on the Thames. Yeah. Okay. So what what sort of podcast do you listen to, or, or what books do you read? Uh, TED interviews is another good one, uh, and I think I like to relax also to Desert Island Discs. Uh, fascinated what uh, you know other people have achieved certainly in in public life, and uh, I think you can get a lot of inspiration. What is it called thing. again? Des- Desert Island Discs. Okay, it's on Radio Four. Right. So anyone in the UK yeah, will, okay. will recognise okay. that. So uh, you have a lot, lot of uh, well-known people that go on there and uh, typically answer a lot of questions about their life and uh, choose uh, eight tracks, music tracks, uh, that really uh, mean something to them at different points in their life. That's really cool. M- music's a big part of most people's life, I think, in some Absolutely. way or another. Yeah. Um, okay, so one last question for you, and this is near and dear to me, travel. So what is your favourite holiday destination? has to be the Far East. Really? And if you want to pinpoint Vietnam, has okay. to be Vietnam, where I was there last summer, and uh, stunning culture, countryside, uh, and the people so welcoming. Yeah, it's one of... Thailand, again, is another, you know, but yeah. Well, uh, Vietnam, I've, I've not been. It's one of my, um, it's one of my bucket list items. I've, I've been to Hong Kong and didn't, have, didn't drink any Corona when I was there, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, Anyway, uh, thank you again, Chris, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, and I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you're listening today, I really appreciate it. And thank you, Apple and Spotify and all the great networks that syndicate this. You're listening to the Workbold Podcast. And until next time, take care of yourself. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode and every episode you listen to. And if you do, I'd love for you to share it with that one person who you think needs to hear this message. You can always find our podcast on our website at workbold.co and click on podcast or any podcast app that you use. Just search hashtag workbold. It'd mean a lot to me if you leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Finally, please do connect with me on social media. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram or just search LinkedIn. Send me your questions, what you want to hear next, comment on my accent or challenge what we've talked about. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at podcastsyndicator.com or Brett at podcastsyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.